Welcome to Prime Time. This week, Henry Pelham Part 2, or a second episode for exploring the Honourable Henry Pelham, Walpole's protégé, and for connected purposes. Hello, and welcome to Prime Time. We're rating all of the British Prime Ministers from Robert Walpole to the modern day. I'm John. I'm Rob. And I'm Cass. And today we're taking a further look at our third Prime Minister. We are. Do you remember where we were at the end of our last episode? I am going to be completely honest with you, John. Not only did we only record this, what, last week, I also listened to the rough version of it uh, this morning. And I still can't. (laughs) remember a single thing about Henry Pelham. Oh, you tried so hard. I tried so hard. <laughs> and I failed at the first hurdle. Um, he got in, then the Jacobites happened, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Oh, and Bonnie Prince Charlie was rubbish. I remember that. Yeah, and he ran away. So you're saying that your takeaway from Henry Pelham's episode was that Bonnie Prince Charlie was rubbish. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we're saying. Do you have any takeaways about Henry Pelham? Uh, he had a brother who was really rich. Didn't he yes. like own Newcastle? Lincolnshire, I think. He's the Duke of Newcastle. He owns a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think the biggest thing that the big exciting cliffhanger was that (gasps) Lord Carteret, who had been kicked out, was still controlling the king a bit on foreign policy. And so Henry Pelham and the entire government resigned. And then we went, oh, how exciting. And then John said, "Okay, we're going home now. I haven't slept since then. (laughs) I've been wondering what's going to happen. No wonder you struggled with taking the information. (laughs) Just so so sleep deprived. A very brief overview. Henry Pelham was a second son. His brother became Duke of Newcastle and inherited all the wealth. And Henry Pelham was left with only a small amount of wealth that he quickly augmented by getting married and becoming fantastically wealthy again. Oh, yeah. It's a real riches to enormous riches story. Heartwarming. Yes. (laughs) He stepped into politics the way that only a tremendously rich person could because he was related to one of the most powerful people. Sorry, he was related to all of the most powerful people. (laughs) Yes, they were all related to Townsend. Although, weirdly, Townsend sort of slipped out of the room quietly after everybody else had started taking over. And together, Walpole and Newcastle and Pelham led the nation. Pelham spent 20 years working under Walpole diligently supporting him on almost every aspect of his leadership. And in fact, when Walpole stepped out, Pelham refused to profit from the position and instead insisted that it go to some nobody called Wilmington, who, after 16 months, conveniently died. God, who's that? He sounds dreadful. (laughs) Thank goodness someone's done a full episode on him. (laughs) After Wilmington's death, Pelham and his brother were suddenly in the best position because they had all of Walpole's supporters behind them, but none of the direct association with the previous premier. Genius. Mm. Which is why it sounded so nice and noble when Pelham was like, oh, I couldn't possibly become prime minister. But actually it was, Wilmington, you do it for a bit, you muck it up, you die, and then everything will be left to me. Oh, it was the, yeah. Schemers. Mm. But he learned from Walpole. If he worked for 20 years under Walpole, he learned everything about bribery and scheming and all that sort of stuff. Yep. And then once he took power, he crushed the last Jacobite rebellion, made himself Chancellor of the Exchequer. Oh, yes. Cash as well, controlling the money. And then he and his brother and all of their mates resigned from the government. Yeah. That was where we left it. (laughs) What is left of this government then? What's happening with our country at the moment? So the answer is nothing is left. George (laughs) II was absolutely scrambling to form an administration. He turned to Carteret and Pulteney but they literally didn't have enough backers to form an actual government. Oh, awkward. Every other prominent Whig was also threatening to resign, 
and the City of London Corporation withdrew an offer for a three million pound loan, which is about five hundred and fifty million pounds today, Oof. which the government desperately needed to continue to pursue a war on the continent. And they literally said, "No Pelham, no money." Oh yeah, wow. that, that war in Antarctica is really important. <laughs> <laughs> wow, does everyone love Pelham? Is that why? Apparently so. Wow. The king had literally no choice but to ask the Pelhams to return to government on their terms. Oh, oh wow. that's so good. So do you remember how Walpole was brought in because there was a crisis, because there was the South Sea crisis, and they yeah. literally needed the only person who could restore confidence? Well, Pelham did the same, yeah. but he made it. He himself just went, eh, I'm going to leave, and that'll cause a crisis. That is so funny. And I love that for him. And come crawling back. And Carteret and Pulteney were so humiliated that they were never a threat to, to Pelham's primacy again. Wow. Pelham is really getting through all the people who were at that top table deciding who got in when Wilmerson got in. Just one by one, he's picking them off. Yeah, taking them down. They're all gone now. Amazing. Yeah. Good for him. Pelham's prime time. With this power play, the Pelhams had utterly crushed all hope of opposition, and they enjoyed a period of relative peace. Except for that war they were fighting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Against the penguins. Mm-hmm. So I'm never going to get bored of this. <laughs> Every time the continent comes up now for the next 60 episodes. So what do you do when you're prime minister and you've just crushed all of your opponents? I would say give yourself a raise. Get loads of money. Do whatever you want. You throw a general election. But, uh, but they have a huge majority Yeah, already, yeah, so no they? one else will be able to... to Get an even more yeah. mahusive majority. So they were actually only a year away from the point where they, they were going to have to do yeah. one. And this was the first one that had been called since Robert Walpole was Prime Minister. Oh my God. Ah, so we're going to have a new majority that's yes. not Walpole's. Interesting. Yep, because at this point, elections only had to happen every seven years. Yeah. Pelham asked the king to call it a year early, in 1747 in order to keep his opponents on the back foot. And it worked. The primary Whig faction won 71% of the common seats, up from 61%. That's enormous. That's massive. Of course, this was an election in the 18th century, so we can presume that there were bucket loads of bribes. Sure. Having secured a powerful majority, Pelham set about ending the War of the Austrian Succession. Negotiations with France had actually been going on since the previous year. It's not like the Brits came in and went, oh, it's time for the war to end. It was, it was nearly at its end. But the French had also strengthened their position with several victories in the time that the negotiations had been going on, so Pelham paid the Russians to get involved, which rather tipped the balance in their favour. The end of the war wasn't an unmitigated success. Austria was forced to let go of Silesia, but their succession was confirmed. Mm-hmm. From Pelham's perspective, the end of the war came at a very convenient time, because a lukewarm conclusion to a war is usually a bad thing for a government. Because it's very easy to imagine that something better could have happened. Yeah. But they just won a general election. They had six years to figure it out. Clever timing. Hmm. Having ended the war, Pelham took the opportunity to make a few changes. If you had a massive majority and literally no opposition, what changes would you make to the country? I would change all the taxes. I'd just change all the laws. (laughs) Just all of them. them. (laughs) Rewrite them all from scratch. Pass would throw a massive reverse card at the statute book and just say, change everything. (laughs) I mean, he's already Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer. Mm. I mean, this isn't like a sort of North Korean situation where he just takes <laughs> all of them. He represents us in Eurovision every year. <laughs> the old Eurovision. Not quite, but he did change a lot of things. In 1749, he passed an act to reorganise the Royal Navy. 
This was about trying to stop political interference in courts martial, but it was quite inflexible. In courts martial. Yeah. Mm, beautifully pluralised. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was quite inflexible, and about ten years later, this change of the, of the rules would result in the execution of an admiral, essentially for just not being good enough. But, <laughs> oh my goodness. At the time, and since then, that was seen as a travesty of justice. But in practice, what he did was he tried to say, let's stop politicising the way that we try our admirals and things. In the process, he wrote a series of rules that no one really questioned that much. And then later on, they went, ah, oh, yeah, technically we need to execute this guy for, like, not winning a war. Oh, my God, awkward. Oh. Yeah. So he did do what I would do, which was write a bunch of stupid laws. <laughs> I mean, pretty much, yes, Kess. Kess, why did you write those laws? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. In the early 1750s, he restructured government debt and reduced spending. Everyone's favourite thing to talk about. <laughs> I love debt restructuring. Walpole did it. Mm, well... Henry Pelham did it despite opposition from the Bank of England, the East India Company, and the South Sea Company, and he reduced interest from 4% to 3%. So he basically went, screw you all, I am the most powerful person, and you cannot get in the way. Literally a dictator, what are you going to do? This allowed him to cut land tax, the tax which was paid by the very wealthy, from four shillings on the pound to two. Uh. Ah. 20% 20% down to 10 How much land tax do you think his brother was paying? And do you think oh, this particularly came in useful for him? And <laughs> all of Lincolnshire. <laughs> I'm sure that his brother paid an awful lot, but I will point out there were other times when he also opposed taxes like salt tax that would have been paid by everyone. He wasn't as low taxes for my mates as Robert Walpole was. He was low tax for everyone, but mostly my mates. <laughs> In 1751, Pelham's government faced a crisis precipitated by the death of Frederick, the Prince of Wales. The king was 67, which was the age at which his father had died, and the new prince was just 12. Oh, bleak. Oh, that is bleak. And also, this is the reason why we have four Georges in a row. We nearly had a Frederick, but he died too early, so it went to his son, George. Can you imagine King Fred? King Fred would be sweet. That'd be great, yeah. yeah. Frederick goes on to the list along with Albert and Arthur of names that never quite became king. Yes, and Are you telling me that was Sophia, a king? Sophia, the Electress of Hanover. King Sophia, the Electress of Hanover. <laughs> it was clear that a Regency Council would have to be assembled in case the king died before his grandson, the new prince, was 21. Right. This is the kind of crisis that could really bring down a government because that sort of who's going to become king question. I mean, go back to our primeval politics episode if you want to hear about boy kings and all the stuff that they and get up to. And <laughs> But Pelham backed the prince's mother, the 32-year-old Augusta of Saxe-Gotha, dowager princess of Wales, over the child's uncle, the Duke of Cumberland, who had fought against the Jacobites. Oh yeah, and had won a good victory. Yes, and he was a little bit too much of a, of a Richard III sort of character. Oh, oh dear, right. Or at least that was the fear. Yes. And once that was resolved, Pelham was unstoppable. Britain was at peace, they didn't need another general election for the next seven years, And with the Jacobites gone, there were no internal threats. In fact, he tried to retire. The king insisted that he stay. Well, given the last time that he tried to leave. (laughs) Do you think he was just, it was a threat so he could come back with even more stuff his way? (laughs) Oh, no, I'm going to retire. Oh, okay, (laughs) I guess I'll come back. But only if I can make it a law that, what's a ridiculous law that you'd make? I become King Henry Pelham the (laughs) first. I am your heir now. (laughs) So this is an appropriate point to notice, that Henry Pelham hasn't picked up any honours or titles. You're oh, right. That, yeah, that's what I would have... I would have been like, oh, I'll only stick around if you make me yeah. the highest 
what, like a duke? A duke. Well, his brother is the highest. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, a duke. I, Demote I, my brother. Oh, that's a much Give better me thing. the duke. Yes. <laughs> but you have to wonder if maybe the reason he didn't go for titles was because you just, you just can't compete with that. Getting getting I a mean, dukedom would have actively can. <laughs> well, but he was ruling from the House of Commons, and he was definitely going from from Walpole's style of you rule from the House of Commons. Mm. So yes. he could never compete with that without leaving the House of Commons and letting go of what he had. But he could have got the garter or the bath, both of which Walpole did get, mm. and happily. He never just did. didn't. Did he never get anything? He never got anything. That's rubbish. That's really strange. Mm. Given that he could have asked for whatever he wanted on a silver platter. Yeah. Right, maybe he really had a chip on his shoulder by his brother. Maybe he'd said to his brother something like, I don't like dukedoms, I think they're rubbish. Yeah. And now he just, out of pride, he can't get one now. Well, maybe... But at this time, he started to legislate towards something we've actually not seen much of, which is trying to improve the lives of people in the country. Oh, I don't think that'll catch on. No. Or at least allowing other people to pass legislation that did so. I'll go into this in some more detail in Prime and Premiership. The only fly in the ointment was a frustrating skin infection that cropped up in 1753. He tried going on holiday to Scarborough, but somehow that didn't cure him. can't believe Scarborough didn't work. The condition came back in December, and he fell seriously ill. He felt sufficiently well to get back to work in January, but there was a resurgence in February, and finally, in the run-up to the 1754 general election, and in his late 50s, he died. (gasps) Oh, wow. He died in office. He died in office. Oh, that was all Wilmington had going for him. He's immediately been beaten by the next guy. Wow. In his 50s, having, I mean, done more than Wilmington, to be fair... But that's a that's a time that really so cut quick. short. What was his skin condition it, then? To be fair, it wasn't cut short. It's just that the last period of his life, there was no challenges to his reign. Oh, so I, I skipped oh, over okay. a lot. Okay. What what was his skin condition? Do we know? I've only been able to see that it was an infection. Nothing mm. more than that. Do you think he caught something in Scarborough? It's a dodgy place. <gasps> Maybe. If you remember when Wilmington died, Carteret went, Oh no! <laughs> Moving on. Well, when George II found out about this, he said, Now I shall have no more peace. Oh, wow. I mean, this is a guy who clearly doesn't know what to do without Henry Pelham. Mm. And he can't make Henry Pelham come back this time. (laughs) And now the time has come for us to review him. Prime and Premiership. Pelham's ministry was referred to as the Broad Bottom Ministry. (laughs) What? (laughs) I believe they make the rocking world go round. (laughs) (laughs) That's because it included Whigs from all across the spectrum. So he included even people like William Pitt, whom the king absolutely hated. And had a really broad bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was actually really quite difficult to fit them all on the front bench. (laughs) (laughs) So by including everyone... This is like the original your mum joke. (laughs) What was his name when... Uh, William Pitt. When William Pitt goes to the House of Parliament, he sits next to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, by including William Pitt... And everyone else. Pelham made sure that there wasn't any credible opposition because yeah. all of the Whigs were on his side. Because William Pitt sat on them all. <laughs> hmm. He funded and prosecuted a war on the continent. He, Antarctica. Yep. He ended a Jacobite threat at the same time that had overshadowed the previous 50 years. And did, he. Did he have William Pitt sit on the Jacobites? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry to William Pitt. He's being very unfairly maligned here. I'm sure that William Pitt sat on many a committee. (laughs) (laughs) On top of prosecuting a war on the continent and defeating Jacobite threat, he won a general election at the same time. 
During his premiership, he passed a lot of legislation, much of which we can still see today in some form or other. For example, in 1750, he changed the calendar. He changed the calendar? Yep. So this involved moving from the Julian calendar, as established Uh... in about 45 BC. Did they have calendars in 45 BC? Oh, there's this really cool thing. So Julius Caesar uh, established in 46 BCE that they were going to move to the Julian calendar. Oh, sure, because that's where, like, Augustus and August and whatever, July, so etc. Like comes from. Yeah. Pretty much, yes. Augustus technically modified it later because it turned out that Julius Caesar's calendar, or indeed the calendar that some smart bloke wrote for Julius Caesar, had been misinterpreted and they put too many leap years in, and so Augustus fixed it. Oh, but embarrassing. the Julian mm-hmm. calendar, as it was created... Um, was put into place in 45 BCE, which also means that 46 BCE is the longest year on record. Oh, that's, oh, that's such fun. a good fact. I tell you what, 2020 felt like the youngest <laughs> year on record, really. Well, it had three extra months. Oh. And it also just happened to be the year when Julius Caesar was consul for a year. Oh, oh that's timed. funny, isn't it? This year has lasted 48 normal years. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, anyway. so we're, we're now on a Gregorian calendar, which is what we're on now? Yes, exactly. Nice. Okay, what's the difference? Let's see how much research John has done. <laughs> well, what's the difference? I think, given how much John has already known about the calendar, I think he'll know exactly the difference between the Julian and the Gregorian calendars. I can tell you the difference. And that's when is the... Easter in the Julian calendar? <laughs> <laughs> so actually, the Calendar Act did explicitly specify how to calculate Easter and Christmas. But the main thing that it did was, with the Julian calendar, you have a leap year every four years. Mm-hmm. But with the Gregorian calendar, you have a leap year every four years, unless it's the turn of the century. It's 1900, 1800, one of those. Right. Unless, unless it's a 400 year. So 1600, 2000, 2400. Right. Okay. This is not remotely confusing. Well, so. No, I, I get it, I get it, I get it. The maths involved in this is actually really complicated uh, no way yeah. i wouldn't except have believed that, that except that the complicated bit was done by the romans because mm. all gregory had to do was go how many years has it been since then oh and and how far out is the calendar now and then, yeah, how do they know how far out a calendar is because you know out when the calendar what? says that the longest day should be so it's really easy to say oh well the calendar says today should be the longest day but it was 11 days ago we must be 11 days out uh... it's genius isn't it mm. but all gregory had to do or indeed Gregory, smart people. <laughs> All they had to do was measure how far out they were. So I did not realise that the, ca- the Gregorian calendar was just named after some guy named Gregory. That's really funny. Some guy being the Pope. For more information, <laughs> listen to Pontifacts, although I'm not sure if they've done him yet. That's interesting. And I think it took us quite a long time to get onto the calendar because it was a bit of a Catholic thing. Because yeah. the Pope was doing oh, it. Oh yeah, of course, Gregory. Yeah, so I think we, uh, we took some persuading. Yes, so the Gregorian calendar was introduced in 1582 AD. Oh. We picked it up 150 years later. Oh, some persuading then. That's a lot of persuading. I don't want the Catholics to tell me what to do. The Pope telling me when, when to celebrate Christmas? God. How dare he. The worst thing, of course, is that that meant that the calendars were out of sync by about 11 days. So 11 days in September of 1752 just didn't happen. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Oh, what if that was your birthday? You'd be so annoyed. The Pope had stolen your birthday. Oh, <laughs> oh that is an incredible fact. War with Italy it is. <laughs> the War of Jenkins' Birthday. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, he also changed the start of the year from, guess when the year used to start? Oh, was it not January the 1st? 
I bet it was like March or something. Was it like spring? It was the 25th of March. I am so good at this. I feel like I already knew so that. So you might have known somewhere. this because if you take the 25th of March and you add on the 11 days that were stolen from people, yeah. you get to the 6th of April, which is when the tax year starts. That's which is why an incredibly boring taxes. Fact. I know, it's so <laughs> boring, and they've never fixed it. Like, 250 years, and they haven't fixed this. Yeah, we still start the tax year on April the 6th. Whereas everyone else is like, either January the 1st, or maybe like October the 1st or something. We're just like, April the 6th. That'll be it. What I do want to stress is that from a research perspective, this is huge. Not a single book that I have read has bothered to mention which calendar system they're using. And sometimes oh. they have clearly <gasps> quoted two dates that are from different calendar systems. Oh no, that's so annoying. And it's no longer a problem. Oh, that's oh, good. Oh, yay. Congratulations. <laughs> Well done, you've got through the hard bit now, John. You've yes. only got, you know, another <laughs> couple hundred years to go. <laughs> to go. Yes. In 1751, the Gin Act was an attempt to curb drunkenness and crime by restricting access to alcohol. Boo. Oh, boo, I bet they peeled in like that. Well, so gin had been introduced from the Netherlands over the preceding 50 years and had become so popular that Londoners consumed around 25 modern alcoholic units per week per person. That... Is, is that all? <laughs> is this, is this on lot. average? Uh, yes, on average. Is that including children? <laughs> I mean, they'd have to have been old enough to drink, so we're talking yeah. like five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 25 shots of gin a week. That's breakfast. <laughs> I hate gin, actually. I would not have survived in this period. <laughs> You're on the wrong side of the table. <laughs> so the goal of the act was to prohibit selling the selling of gin to unlicensed merchants, and it was more successful in tackling the larger problem of drunkenness than previous attempts had been. The 1753 Marriage Act introduced a minimum age of 21 for people to marry without parental consent. Was there a previous one before this, or was it just good luck? It set a minimum age of 12 for women and 14 for men. But 21 if you didn't have parental permission. Now, as far as I can tell, there weren't rules that were as specific as this before that, but I'm I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay. 12 is a bit grim, isn't it? Yeah, and also, why did men have to be older? I said men, boys. Boys. I don't know. What I do know, though, is the other thing that it did was it required there to be a marriage register, and it said that for a wedding to happen, it had to be in a parish church or chapel of the Church of England to be legally binding, which, bearing in mind that previously you still had to be married by the Church of England, it's just that a vicar could do it in a coal cellar, and it would still count. So this meant that suddenly marriage wasn't something that you could do in secret. It had to be something ah. that was publicly ah, okay, interesting. Known, okay. which must have done a lot to stop people from being essentially married off to much, much, much older people and that kind of thing. Doing it slightly more in the open, just... Yeah, okay. I suppose that's sort of basic levels of protection. Hmm. The Scots maintained an exception to this until the 20th century, which caused a lot of people to flee to Gretna Green. That's why! Oh, that's really interesting. Jews and Quakers were excluded. Catholics were not. Interesting. Excluded from these limits. Being married. Yeah. (laughs) Jews and Quakers, I think, were allowed their own marriage ceremonies. Oh, I see. Oh, Catholics weren't. Sorry, you're Catholic. Get in line. (laughs) And finally, the Jew Act of 1753, I know... Already everybody's on edge because of the name. Well, it was an attempt to allow Jews to petition for citizenship. Okay. Oh, okay. It's not as terrible as it sounds. I know. And it also was specifically meant to allow Jewish people to take oaths without using the word Christian. 
Oh, so it's actually some rights. Yes, unfortunately, he was defeated on this one. And although it made it into law, it was then very quickly repealed by a kind of backlash that he couldn't really stop. So this was a bit of a failure, but he did actually try. Points for trying. Mm. So what do you think of his prime and premiership? Interesting. I mean, this is sort of the first time we've started to talk about things that are good for people, some Mm. normal people. Yeah. Um, Drinking less, they probably annoyed them, but it was probably good for public health. And oh yeah, certainly. <laughs> yes, uh, rights rights for Jewish people, um, rights for to slightly protect people from being married off in very dubious circumstances by making it a bit more public. These seem quite good, and the bigger stuff won a war, beat the Jacobites. Yeah, and also thing. like when he resigned, the king just had to be like, "Please come back." <laughs> yeah, I mean that's and that's a really big thing to sort of make a prime minister. That's really properly, I will govern. Sort of whether you like it or not, you'll submit to my terms. It really is 100% government, not only apart from the king, but even in opposition in some ways to the king's wishes. I think it's pretty good. It's not yeah. like incredible, but it's... No, but I it's, don't know what would be incredible, but it's, it's pretty... Yeah, it's pretty strong. Good. It feels quite strong and positive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing that I didn't mention before this, actually, is that he was in for about 10 years, hmm. Hmm. which says a lot about... I know we said this a lot in Robert Walpole's episode, but stability. Mm. Yeah, stability. But also Robert Walpole did less in 20 years, it seems, than Pelham managed to do in 10. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, that's this very good. Mm-hmm. I might start with eight. I'm going to go a nice conservative 7.5. I'm also going to go eight. Mm. I considered eight. And then I, again, I was like, look, we're only on our third prime minister. I'm hedging. That's true. That's fair enough. But I don't know if that's unfair to him. I think the main thing that I really liked is that all the crises were just dealt with. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't thrilling, though. No, and he also, although he did make some motions to make the country better, you know, he ended a war and that kind of thing, he didn't reform much. I mean, the calendar's great for me, but <laughs> <laughs> probably not, you know, there's not that much of No, a, I'm just thinking if, when you get no. to, like, 20th century and you have people like Attlee who are, like, creating the NHS and mm. then, like, I guess Churchill and, like, stuff like that, it's, yeah, I don't know... I, you're right, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm saving gonna... my high points. Okay. You've got me down. I'm going to go for a 7.5. <gasps> I think I agree that you've really got to do something surprising to get yourself into the top. And resigning is a great power play, <laughs> but not necessarily good for the country, as it were. True. Basically, I think we've mentioned previously that um, we are all quite conservative <laughs> with our scoring. So I think I'm going to stick with eight and therefore force myself to be absolutely exuberant when it comes <laughs> to some absolutely massive prime ministers. Good. And go 8.5. <laughs> all right. That's 23 points for Prime and Premiership. Life and Legacy. Well, he led troops against the Jacobites in the Battle of Preston in 1715. This isn't so much of a legacy as a life well lived. This is one of the last battles fought on English soil, though. And he won it, right? With m- quite did. minimal casualties. Yeah, although like I didn't tell you which old. side they were on. <laughs> oh, no. As in, I'm not sure. I think it's oh, okay. one of those... Oh, okay. yeah. Still, though, like, three, it was like 300 out of 4,000 or something. That's pretty decent odds, I'd say. Yeah. Do you want to hear some of the other things that claim to be the last battle on English soil? Oh, I would love to. I might just very quickly say that that, I suppose, really is a proper legacy if you really stop the Jacobite pretenders. Oh, yeah, that's I a mean, good point. There, there still are Jacobite pretenders out there. There's still people who ultimately would be the king of this country if you'd gone down that line, but no one's really I, a Jacobite I, I anymore. That's you said there's still Jacobite pretenders. I like the idea of some some guy lurking in France or something. Just... I, I think he's lurking in Bavaria. <gasps> and Easy. I think, did he come out and marry his boyfriend at the age of 90 or something? Oh, good for him. 
Franz von Bayern of the House of Wittelsbach, the great-grandson of Ludwig III, the last king of Bavaria. Incredible, he would own both England and Bavaria. <laughs> that would be a power play. Franz von Bayern, here we go. Full name is Franz Bonaventura Adalbert Maria Herzog von Bayern. Oh, that's And great. what could be more British than that? <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And his great-grandfather, Ludwig III, was the last ruling monarch of Bavaria. And did he marry his boyfriend at the age of 19? I'm trying to find out. But he spent time in several Nazi concentration camps. Oh, poor guy. He has had a life partner since 1980, Thomas Greinfeld, although they never married. Oh, oh good for them, though. Oh, that was it, because they first publicly appeared as a couple in 2023. Oh, that's so, so wholesome. Of... He is a direct descendant of the House of Stuart. Were it not for the Act of Settlement, France would be the successor to the British and Irish crowns. Uh, his spokesperson has, however, made it clear this is purely a hypothetical <laughs> issue. <laughs> An entirely British question which does not concern him and not a claim that he pursues. Just like, we no longer claim the French throne. That is so funny. I tell you what, if France, if you're listening, come back. I would vote for you. Sure. Oh, am I committing treason there? France, if you're listening, <laughs> don't come back. <laughs> come back to visit. Come back to visit and hang out. Well, so that's a big legacy. That's that that is a Probably legacy. Probably settling the success. Yeah, if mm. if he had not done that, then Franz von Bayern yeah. would maybe be our king, and then we would have two kings. Oh, oh I'm going to give that. him negative points for that legacy. <laughs> we could have had a gay king. No, Come on. I'm sorry, but unfortunately, we've never got ourselves together with how titles should transfer between men. Although I guess it would be higher up the list of things for the government to sort out if we had. A we king had with we a... had King Philip of of Spain, Mary's husband. No, I know, but as in... Oh, as in men, yeah, men like, to men. What, yeah. Well, they'd have, they'd have had to bloody yeah. work it out, so yeah. we could have had... Right. could have forced the issue. Franz, Franz von Bavaria and his husband. And that is all we can say, because to suggest more would be treason. And we are not pro-treason on this podcast. Thank you. Your Majesty, if you're... <laughs> Shout out to Your Majesty. <laughs> so, going back to the other claimants to being the last battle on English soil, other claimants are... The Clifton Moor skirmish, which was also mentioned in the last oh, episode. Oh, yeah, but if it's got the word skirmish uh, in the title, yeah. it doesn't really sound like a battle, does it? Like, no. I had a skirmish with someone on the tube. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that 27 people died or were wounded in it. 27 people died on the tube skirmish as well. Wow. It was just dreadful. <laughs> the Battle of Graveney Marsh was about capturing a grounded German bomber in 1940. Ooh. Can anyone guess what the injuries were for that one? Oh, was it one German shot in the foot <laughs> oh, <okay>. oh no <laughs> the bigger problem was that we were trying to stop them from destroying the plane because we wanted to work out how it worked yeah. oh did, did it work uh, did... I believe so yes Ooh, oh good very us. good obviously there was also the battle of Britain but that occurred that, in the that skies was, that was very much in the skies not on land I don't think it counts no mm. interesting and then finally Operation Nimrod which was the end of the Iranian embassy siege in 1980 Yes. Where was that? In London? In London, just by Hyde Park. But then that was more terrorists had overtaken an embassy. And there were six fatalities, including is, one hostage. This is wild. Mm. I didn't know about this. It's quite fascinating. We basically just sent in the SAS. I mean, we did a bunch of other stuff, which is... Charming really... train killers, just a phone call away. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We got British gas to drill on the streets opposite so that there'd be a lot of noise so that we could get ready. That yeah. is great. Good for good for British yeah. gas. Um, we... I'd put that on all my British gas adverts. <laughs> yeah, I would actually. <laughs> we, 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 we'll get we, to it. Yeah. 
in the we 1980s. Will actually, yeah. we, will. we will discuss it more in Margaret Thatcher's episode. Tune um, in in about eight years' time when we get to <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. Back to Pelham. Like Walpole, he invested in the South Sea Company. Ah. Which is a negative mm, thing. Yeah, I don't... Although yeah. he did lose money. <laughs> well, well, but he still tried he deserved, to, yeah. so. And he also helped screen the primary movers oh, from the mob. No, mm. why are they all doing this? Yeah. Well, he did it because his boss did it. Oh, yeah, but okay. and, and his brother-in-law and cousin and all the yeah. stuff. They were all but the same person. Yeah. He's definitely culpable. Yeah. yeah. I have a legacy fact for Henry Pelham. Yes. Which is that he is the only British Prime Minister, as far as I'm aware, to appear in a Disney film. No. Love Actually isn't a Disney film. Love Actually is not a Disney film. What? Can you guess what film he appears in? Henry Pellet. It is a film that's set at the time that he would have been Prime Minister. He turns up alongside the King and they are discussing piracy. Oh, my Disney films are so bad, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's... Yeah, Disney film is perhaps misleading. It's, it's a film about piracy, Rob. It's one of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Is it? Yes, it oh, is. Oh, wow. That's he, a really good film. I watched the... So I haven't seen this Pirates of the Caribbean film because there are about 25 of them and yeah. this is, I don't know, the eighth or something. But I did watch the scene oh. that he was in and he has, like, two lines and one of them is, don't be rude to your king. <laughs> and then the other one oh. is like, Oh, when someone pulls out a gun. <laughs> um, but yeah, he pops up. He's played by Roger Allen. He's got a big wig. That's brilliant. What an interesting fact. Mm-hmm. So legacy. He yeah. well, yeah, is there. basically the central character. It sounds like yeah, in the I, I think so. He was really the you know he's at the top of the IMDb page. <laughs> it's really about him. Yeah, basically. That's about it in terms of life and legacy. But are there any things you wanted to bring up from his episode? Yeah, I mean, again, this feels. Good. I think the South Sea Company is a significant negative, which we didn't really have in the first category, whereas I think this is a a genuine, we'll we'll knock a few points off of that. Yeah, Yeah. so just to remind our listeners that unlike Prime and Premiership, which is meant to be discussed as they would have been perceived at the time, in Life and Legacy, we consider the modern perspective, which includes being very judgmental about things like slavery. Yep. He was a Freemason too, wasn't he? He Mm. was, Yes. Because the Freemasons historically have been, I don't want to say dodgy, because then I feel like I will disappear under mysterious circumstances. (laughs) I think it can be said that one of the aspects of Henry Pelham's life that really stood out is how much he always knew the right people because of his privileged upbringing. Yeah. And I know that that's the case for everyone for the first two, well, to be honest, every prime minister, but... It really stood out for him how much having his brother be the most powerful landowner in the country just meant that the doors just fell over themselves opening in front of him. On the other hand, he did use the opportunities well. You know, Wilmington, for example, often demonstrated (laughs) that despite people being willing to give him stuff, he was never very good with it. Mm. And it's interesting to me that he never took a lordship. Do we know if he was offered anything and he just rejected it or if he just... I couldn't find anything about him being offered anything. That's really interesting. But presumably he could have just literally, he was so powerful, he could have just been like, give me a dukedom. Yeah, I mean, maybe he thought that in 10 years' time, he'd Oh, God, no, Uh, yeah. Oh, Chad. Yeah. Did he, was he married? Uh, He was married. Oh, yeah, to the the rich lady. Yes, and they apparently had a very happy marriage and he had four children whom he adored. Well, that's nice. That's nice, yeah. And not universal. Mm. Mmm. That's a positive point. Okay, I think for this I'm feeling middly. Um, mm, me few, too. A few big points, few significant legacies, a couple of clear bad points, though. Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to go six. I was also thinking a six. I'm also going for a six. Oh, oh there we go. Uh, my, my thinking was that I was going to deduct about two and a half points for his involvement in slavery. But I was then trying to think, ignoring that, what would he have got out of ten? Okay, yeah. Mm. You're clearly more thoughtful than we are. Well, we all ended up in the same place. Yes, the spirits true. told me he was a six. We vibed our way to six. You calculated he was a six. That's 12 points for life and legacy. Sin and sincerity. According to the government's website, which admittedly he could have written, Might but be I a little bit don't worse. think that we had a website when he was prime minister. When Pelham was paymaster of the forces, he actually didn't use the role to enrich himself, unlike other holders of the office. Ooh. And in fact, Horace Walpole, whom you remember... <gasps> yeah, the house guy. Probably not son of Robert mm, Walpole. The son of the wife of Robert Walpole. <laughs> so Horace Walpole said of Pelham, he lived without abusing his power and died poor. Oh. Which is particularly interesting because Horace Walpole hated him. So oh. his... Like, maybe, maybe that was the equivalent of slagging him off. Maybe. He oh, died, he died he poor. So, what a loser. He God. was so rubbish. He took no advantage of the stuff and he died poor. What an idiot. To be fair, though... Um, Walpole also died poor, just only after taking full advantage yeah, of the situation. And full also, and spending even more. I was going to say, he, do- he, he lived like he was rich, he just yeah. left lots of debts. So. Mm. Um, Interesting, yeah, he seems, he seems very scheming when he needs to be, and very clever when he needs to be, and certainly quite cutthroat. Mm. That's why I'm wondering whether like not having taken a, a, a peerage was not because of principle, but because he was trying to rule from the commons and he mm. would eventually have just deposed his brother or something <laughs> oh, I definitely agree that he was trying to rule from the commons and that he was following Walpole in that respect mm. and that he was scheming yes but then he does seem to be a broadly nice person not too uh, yeah maybe there's a difference between sharp self-interest and active corruption mm. and he doesn't seem to have stepped into that just stealing stuff phase there are a couple of things he did like not skimming money off the top that people looked mm. at and went god that's weird so he refused to profit from Walpole's fall? Temporarily. I was going to say, I <laughs> Until feel he like then that, did. Yeah, I don't think we can credit for that. Sure, but although he was one of the people scheming in the back room, he didn't say, give it to me. Hmm. He also left specific instructions for his papers to be preserved and passed on to his successors to aid in the future of government. Oh, wow. Oh, Whereas, okay. didn't Walpole burn everything? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. No, he seems... Yeah, there's, there's nothing... Again, nothing amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. but there, there's of... a lot of absence of bad stuff. There's presumably a lot of bribing. You know, yeah. he won the Sussex county seat several times, which is impressive, county seat, but also he's probably spent a lot of money on those yeah. elections. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say he did get his brother to buy him a lot of stuff, didn't he? Mm. Yeah. His first seat in Seaford. Mm. Yeah. So he wasn't spotless, and he didn't change the system, but he did demonstrate that he, you could be better in the world that he lived in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. I do also want to say, though, that this is a period in which democracy is not doing very well and the Whigs are slowly crushing the Tories. And it's a sort of election-by-election election thing where there are very few Tories left and it's not necessarily something the government's doing deliberately so much as the the fact that they are always trying to keep themselves in power is just erasing all possibility of there being an actual competition. Yes, that is true. And I suppose that plays into, if the Tories were the original Jacobites, we're into really the end game of Jacobitism. And so I imagine everyone gets swept up in the, let's be, Hanoverian Whigs as opposed to Jacobite Mm, Tories. Absolutely. 
Interesting. Yeah, I'm feeling, again, I'm feeling middly, maybe slightly above middle. Yeah, but there's I, nothing... I'm going to go slightly above middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Five and a half. I'm going to go six. I'm going to go for an eight. An oh, eight. wow. Bloody okay. hell. And I'm going to make an effort to try and argue you, you up. Yes, oh, John's always it. been really big on, like, honesty and integrity yeah. and stuff. Yes. So I think that if he'd change the system, that would be something that we're put in life and legacy, or indeed prime and premiership. He personally demonstrated a degree of honesty that we just haven't seen before now. Wilmington skimmed as much money as he could off the top, even though he was useless. And Walpole was just going, oh, I don't have to be honest. I can do whatever I want. Whereas Pelham just quietly did his job and didn't steal money and tried to demonstrate that honesty was acceptable. And yes, sometimes he can be accused of being scheming in his honesty, but he can never be accused of being scheming in his dishonesty because he wasn't dishonest. Yeah, that's quite nice. Oh, you've pushed me up a little bit. I think he was sometimes scheming in his dishonesty. I think he probably did want to be Prime Minister after Robert Walpole and threw Lord Wilmington under the bus on purpose. I, you've, you've, yeah, I'm convinced. I think you've made a very good point that actually we haven't seen anyone of personal honesty and integrity at this point. I'm going to go up to a seven. Up from a six? Yeah. I was on five and a half. I will go up to a six. I'm still, you've convinced me a bit. I'm still thinking there's nothing... Yeah, there's nothing... He's not, he's not really great. Yes. Absence of badness. But I would want a little bit more for, for slightly more points. But I think six is good. Very well. That's 14 points for sin and sincerity. Pretty good. <laughs> Majority. Callum actually benefits from the fact that he inherited Lord Wilmington's majority at a point when the Patriot Whigs and the other oh God, Whigs yeah, were Lord all Wilmington's in at the same massive, time. massive, wasn't it? Yeah, so that gives him a majority of 276. Bloody hell. Which is absolutely most. It is. And so he gets 10 points like all of his predecessors <laughs> <Yes>. have. <laughs> Someone will not get 10 points eventually, but we're yet to find them. I love that. Because, yes, he was in for 10 years, 5 months, and 25 days, or 3,831 <laughs> days. It has to be done in days because yeah. some of them... Actually, Henry Pelham had discon- discontinuous bits, so you might end up in a situation where yeah. somebody has sort of 50 days because yeah, they weren't whole months. 50 days? Oh, I mean, embarrassing. Imagine Boney being Prime Minister <laughs> for, like, 50 days. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God no one's done that. <laughs> well... You'll be excited to listen to our next candidate. Ooh, okay. He had two terms of office, yeah. and overall he gets nine points for tenure. Okay. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's a long one. Prestige points. So, first up is Peerage. He doesn't get any points for Peerage. No, surprisingly. Hmm. Next up is Progress. Nothing uh, springs to mind. He was not a woman. No. Nope. And he did not come from a minority ethnic background. Uh, I think he went to both Oxford and Cambridge. Oh, minus points for prestige. Yes. <laughs> we did consider it. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he's not getting any um, progress points. For practice, Henry Pelham was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Oh, okay. So he gets a point for that. Was he a priest? Like all of our Prime Ministers so far, <laughs> he was not a priest. I live in hope. However, in hope. yeah. He did lead troops into battle. <gasps> yes, of course. That's so exciting. And he must have had a commission. Yes, so yeah. that means that he is our first prime minister 
to receive a point for parlance. Oh, good for him. Oh, that's exciting. In the house, he could have been referred to as gallant. the gallant Henry yeah. Pelham. <gasps> that's so fun. Good, if, of all of them, that's the one you'd want. Gallant is terrific. No, I'd want the dukedom. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Polling. He stood in the Sussex County seat in an election that he won while he was Prime Minister. Yeah. An actual election. Oh, he's doing pretty well. Yeah. He is... Ooh. Do you want to guess how many points Ooh. he's got? I think he's done better than Robert Walpole because I think he's yeah. he's he's got less dodgy stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is astounding, really, because Walpole was in for so long and he was such a huge figure. But actually, I think we liked Henry Pelham better. Yeah, he did more stuff as PM. He was better in terms of legacy, or certainly better in terms of sin, less sinning. He wasn't as exciting, but he was a bit probably better for the country yeah what was Walpole 58 Walpole is on 58.7 what do you reckon I think he's into the 60s I'm going, to say, I'm going to say lowish 60s yeah 71 <gasps> 71 wow that is a massive score that is and people said that we're too restrained in our scoring <gasps> a 7 out of 10 <laughs> <laughs> my Amazing. gosh oh wow oh what well, well on him and that brings us to our final question is he right on or right off? I think we can write him off right now. Seventies, <laughs> right? How dare you? <laughs> this is brilliant. This is brilliant. I really enjoyed reading about him so much, especially after we've got Lord Wilmington. Yeah. I was expecting them all to just be dry and boring. Yeah. And the first thing I read about him was that he led troops into battle just yeah. on a that plane. Is, that is pretty exciting. Like I love how chuffed you are about his like honesty and like niceness yeah. and integrity. That's really quite sweet. Well, also that was the other thing, which is that I was sort of expecting it all to be just a dreary sort of oh, and they were corrupt and yeah. they were more yeah. corrupt. No, that's fair. And I mean, he did have everything handed to him on a silver platter literally uh, excuse everything excuse me he had to get by in his wits <laughs> <laughs> yes he didn't get the dukedom <laughs> but he was I thought really likeable yeah yeah. He does seem likeable. This is really good. And he scores well. And we have such a comprehensive scoring system <laughs> that if you do well, it's because you've actually done well in a lot of stuff. Mm. So, yeah. No, I liked him very much. He didn't even get duked him and he's still done pretty well. Yeah, I know. That's four points thrown away. Mm. Maybe if he had, I don't know, been a bit more scheming, he would have offed yeah. his older brother. Ooh, That's maybe. what I would have done. Yes, well, you killed 20 people on the tube. Just I mean, it's terrible. It's a good thing you don't have any My older brothers. <laughs> Well, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't get any dukedoms out of it. Oh, that's as far as you know. <laughs> so, do we think that he is a write-on or a write-off? I mean, I think I'm going to have to vote yes. He's our highest scoring yet. He scores well across the board. He has some significant legacy. Which is odd for someone who, I must admit, I hadn't really heard oh, of before heard this of series. I think some of them, some Prime Minister's names you think, I've heard of Walpole... Um, but I'd never heard of Pelham, but he did really well. And I really liked him. I think he's one of these sort of slightly dark horse, unexpected write-ons, but I'm going to give it to him. I think he's a decent bloke. He seems like a decent bloke. I don't think we'll get a lot of those. I think fairly soon he's probably going to be, oh, I don't know. I was going to say he's going to be knocked off that kind of top scoring pedestal by like some more exciting guys. But the thing is about the exciting guys is that quite often they've done some really dodgy stuff so they get marked down for it. Yeah, that's part of the so that's quite interesting yeah. actually. Yeah, no I, I'm in agreement with Rob actually. He's he's a good egg. He did profit from slavery, I don't like that. Yes. But Yeah, that's true. But I did I think that one of the things that 
these Rexipods do is give you a bit more of a background of who some of the sort of unknown, you know, yeah, yeah. fun characters in history were. And I think being a write-on doesn't mean that we explicitly approve of everything they did. I mean, mm. Robert Walpole was actually <laughs> probably a pretty scoundrel. horrendous. Yes. <laughs> I mean, also, he sounded actually really boring. And, and, I mean, he held on to power for a while, but I probably wouldn't have liked him that much. Yeah, I wouldn't have invited him to dinner. Mm. Mm. Whereas I think Henry Pelham just sounds really like a yeah. decent bloke, mostly. Oh, he's all right. I think he's scheming, but perhaps more honest and integral than the others. Well, I think the eyes have it. I think they do. The eyes have it. Congratulations, Henry Pelham. You are our second write-on of the series. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well done. Polite applause. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of the year, or nearly the end of the year, because, you lucky boys and girls... And non-binaries. We have some Christmas presents for you because we are doing a special pair of Christmas episodes later in December, but this is all we have now for 2023 of our standard Primetime and Prime Cuts episodes. It's been such a pleasure starting this podcast. We've only been going a few weeks, but it's been so nice to have so many of you lovely people listening to us. We hear our Christmas special is pretty good, actually. Ooh, hint, dot, dot, dot. And you can see another hint on the Instagram. (laughs) This was the write-on and gallant Henry Pelham. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at primetime underscore cast or write in at writeonwriteoff at gmail.com. And remember, never flinch, never weary, never despair and subscribe to our podcast. Wig bribes were up 71% in the previous election, 61. Certainly not as strong as the things that they were buying for the constituents.